Welcome to It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Ship Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking to Eric Peters about the auto market and the Green New Deal. Eric is known as the libertarian car guy, but you'll want to hear this conversation even if you're not a gearhead. We talk about the auto mandates and the Green New Deal, the practical feasibility of electric cars, how government fatwas have distorted the automobile market, the increasing level of auto loan defaults, why it's happening and what it means down the road, and the nanny state and its impact on the auto market. Well, I'm here today with Eric Peters of Eric Peters Autos, a fantastic website that if you're not checking out on a regular basis, you probably should be. Eric, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time to talk to me today. Oh, you bet. Glad to be here. All right, well, so we're going to start the interview like I start all of these It's Your Dime interviews with the, uh, I like to call this little segment, Who Are You and Why Are You on My Show? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is basically just uh, your opportunity to kind of give us a little bit of your background, who you are, where you're coming from, and, and what exactly you do. Well, I'm kind of an off-the-reservation car jockey journalist, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, I, many moons ago, I used to write for mainstream media outlets, including the Chicago Tribune and Washington Times, Car Connection, Cars.com and all of that. Uh, I launched my own website uh, was about two, guess about 10 years ago, and ever since then have been sort of my own one-man shop, which is great because it really allows me to write about things freely that previously I was not free to write about, uh, you know, including not just things like car reviews, but uh, how our mobility is related to our freedom, and that has become a, a focus of my writing. Yeah, it, it really it really comes through, and like I said uh, before, we actually were formally doing the interview. I, I love your work, and I'm not really a gearhead. I'm not a car guy. I drive around in an old BMW. <laughs> it gets me from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. But I discovered you listening to the Tom Woods show, and uh, and he kind of made that same pitch. You know, you don't have to be a car mm-hmm. person to really enjoy what you're doing, and and if you're somebody who cares about liberty, freedom, uh, economics, uh, you cover all of those. Uh, topics in a fantastic way. So I, I encourage everybody to check out what you're doing and your work. The first thing that I kind of want to touch on today uh, is something that's obviously big in the news right now, and that's this uh, insane Green New Deal mm-hmm. that was uh, announced formally. And of course, uh, automobiles are wrapped up in the Green New Deal. And one of the provisions that's pretty prominent is this idea that we're going to go completely to EVs in, I think it's 10 mm-hmm. years is what they're saying, which to me yeah. sounds a little bit crazy. Just from your perspective as a car guy, I mean, let's just, let's just pretend for a minute we buy the whole thing, that we're in this crisis and this is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. Is it even feasible to go to EVs in 10 years? Well, it's feasible, I suppose. It's feasible to do almost anything. It would be feasible to shut down the whole economy, I guess, right. uh, if you wanted to do that. The question is, is it desirable? Um, and you know, my, my, my premise, my fundamental point with regard to EVs is simply this. If they made such sense, if they were a superior alternative uh, to non-electric cars in terms of things like cost of ownership, cost to drive, practicality, and so on, then it would not be necessary to mandate their manufacture and subsidize their purchase. I think that's extremely telling. Uh, in, in, the, in the field of economics, generally speaking, you don't need to put a gun in somebody's belly if it's a good idea. If it's a value, people will naturally 
gravitate in that direction. I have nothing against EVs as such, right. even though I'm often accused of that. What, I'm, what I've got a big problem with, though, is the government trying to force them down our throats via the mandates and the subsidies. Yeah, I feel like from from a layperson's perspective in terms of EVs, I mean, you know, I'm with you. I don't have a problem with the idea or the concept of it. To me, it's just I can't picture how this would be practical for me in, in my daily life to utilize this vehicle. I mean, it would it would it would work for me, you know. And so you're right. It, it does have to be mandated and whatnot. One of the things mm-hmm. you wrote an article that not too long ago that I thought was really interesting. Uh, and this was in the midst of the great polar vortex, and yeah. you pointed out the fact that you know your battery dies, you've got no heat. Can you kind of expand on just that one practical aspect to kind of give people an idea of where we are on on the technology with these things right now? Well, sure, and it's actually rather interesting because this was the first moment, as far as I'm aware, that the general media actually began to cover this issue. I've been writing about it for several years. Oh yeah, uh, in an electric car. Uh, you know, this is going to sound uh, pretty. Uh, obvious, but apparently it's not. Everything that is powered in an electric car is powered by the battery, right? Well, that includes things like your heater and also your air conditioner. And when it's very cold outside, those accessories draw a tremendous amount of power. And that creates a compounding problem because the battery is also supposed to power the car, make it move. Well, if you've lost 10 or 20 percent of the range as a result of using the heat when it's you know minus 20 degrees outside and the range of the car was only 100 miles let's say to begin with you got a problem right you know and and then you've got another problem you know in a in a car that's not electric um, you can refuel to full in literally less than 5 minutes it's extraordinarily convenient you know you don't have to plan ahead there are gas stations everywhere roll up to the pump fill up and you're back on your way and you've got several hundred miles even in a you know so-called gas pig SUV You've got several hundred miles of range now. Now, with an electric car, and a lot of people don't know this, due to the nature of battery chemistry, at these so-called fast chargers, and I always put that in in quotes (laughs) and, and, and italicize it for the irony of it, you're looking at a minimum of 30 to 45 minutes to recover approximately 80% of the charge. And the reason for that is that if you attempt to put a full charge into the battery uh, at a fast charger, potentially you can damage the battery. So that's why they, you know, the onboard electronics will limit the recharge to just 80%. So you start out with, say, 150 miles of range, as in the case of a Nissan Leaf. Now your range is down to 80% of that, and it's very cold out, so you use the heat, and the heat takes another 10 or 20% off of it. Who wants that? Does that make any sense to you? It, it makes zero sense to me. I don't like being cold in the first place. No, most people don't like being cold. And, and then, you know, you get into other peripherals. Uh, the, the Leaf... Uh, is essentially uh, equivalent in terms of what it is, if you leave aside the fact that it's electrically powered, to something like a a Nissan Versa in terms of its size, uh, in terms of its amenities and so forth. Well, the the Leaf has a sticker price of $30,000. Now, you can can get into uh, a Versa sedan uh, for, I think, about $14,000. So you're looking at twice the cost to get into this Leaf that goes half as far, uh, that takes... A minimum, if you can find a fast charger, of 30 to 45 minutes to recover 80% of its 150-mile best-case range. Now you know why you have to have mandates and subsidies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, like I said, the thought that went through my head, especially as as I was reading these articles, I pictured myself, you know, 
trying to get to say my, my kids actually live about an hour away. So trying to get mm -hmm. to my kid's house, getting in a traffic jam in my battery powered car and running out of juice in the middle of the interstate when it's 20 below zero. You know, that's yeah, not a scenario. That, yeah, exactly. That's not a scenario that I want to be in. And you've made the point, too. We have all of these, uh, you know, these safety mandates because, mm -hmm. you know, the government cares so much about our safety. Mm -hmm. And and yet. This is one of those things that doesn't sound particularly safe in that in that situation. No, it's extremely unsafe. And by the way, while we're on that topic, it's interesting that EVs get a pass with regard to things that would be unacceptable uh, with non-electric cars. In an electric car, you've got this uh, this battery pack. It's actually not a not batteries per se. It's a pack of right. batteries, and they're they're spread out generally along the entire floor pan of the vehicle. Now the problem with that uh, is that if the vehicle is in an impact from any direction, that case is potentially going to get damaged. And if the battery case is damaged and the internal structure of the battery is compromised, that alone can trigger a very very serious fire. Whereas with a regular car, you've got the gas tank that's located in one part of the car, generally around the rear axle area. So you have to hit the car in that particular place in the first place to cause damage to the tank. And even if the tank is ruptured and leaks, it takes an external spark, an ignition right. source, to ignite the fuel. The fuel can leak, but the leak doesn't necessarily become a fire. Yeah, it, 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 that reminds me of the uh, brouhaha over the Pinto. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, that, that was... Uh... I was not Which, very by the way, was there. actually a pretty safe car statistically. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's interesting the way statistics are are used. Uh, shall we say, oh. um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's disingenuous. You know, yeah. if you have an agenda, you can manipulate things to make a case, a dishonest case to the public. And you know, I've been ranting and screaming into the wind now for several years about electric cars, about the fact that the media, in my opinion, has been derelict. And not explaining to people these, you know, these, these are significant, objective, functional problems with electric cars. Yet they're being portrayed as sort of a miracle gadget, like your, your new cell phone, uh, that, that is going to do all these wonderful and great things. But they're not telling people about you know, the fact that you, you use the heater, you use the air conditioner, right. and the range declines not just a little bit, but a lot. So as you've been hammering on this subject, what's the reaction that you've gotten from the mainstream? Well... Uh, at first, uh, they, you know, they would, they would just simply dismiss me as, uh, as a hater, much in the way that anybody who questions the whole climate change thing is a denier. As right. in, you know, you're, you're, you're made equivalent to a Holocaust denier. That's the package deal that they're trying to create there. But I find that lately, it's interesting, the wheel seems to be turning a little bit. I find that uh, more and more in the general press, uh, the things that I've been writing about are beginning to percolate, percolate and, being, and they're being talked about, including by... Uh, other guys who review cars like I do. Um, there's a colleague of mine, uh, Paul Eisenstein, who actually wrote about this uh, during the, po the polar vortex. He was reviewing an electric car. I can't recall which model. But he pointed out, you know, he wrote in his review uh, about the effect of the cold and the use of the accessories. And by the way, it's not just heat. It's the defroster. Right. It's the headlights. It's the windshield wiper. It's everything that's powered by electricity on the vehicle's range. It's it's interesting. Let's let's pivot a little bit because you write a lot about. Uh, I love the term you use. You, you call them fatwas, which mm -hmm. essentially is what they are, and, and we see these in a yep. lot of uh, a lot of areas of the auto industry, from from the emissions and the environmental stuff to, uh, as we've already kind of touched on, safety. How yep. much has this really distorted the auto market in terms of what? the consumer would really want to buy and, and what we are offered by the industry? 
Well, it's, it's distorted it along the lines of Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Um, the biggest one is probably something called CAFE, and, and that's an acronym for Corporate Average Fuel Economy. And that is the federal government uh, requirement that uh, each manufacturer's fleet of cars average a certain number of miles per gallon right. collectively. And uh, that has put tremendous pressure on the car companies to design their vehicles to meet the government's specifications rather than the market specifications. Um, CAFE first began to go into effect in the 70s. And back then, the typical American car that most people drove was a fairly large rear-wheel drive uh, sedan or even a station wagon that uh, could easily accommodate a family of five or six people. Well, CAFE effectively regulated that type of vehicle out of existence. The only right. large sedans that you'll find anymore in the new car market are highly, highly expensive, uh, top-of-the-line cars like a BMW 7 Series, mm -hmm. uh, Mercedes S-Class, vehicles like that. So they've been essentially denied to the average person. Well, at the time in the 70s, there was a regulatory loophole, a different standard for what were called light trucks. They, they were subject to a lesser CAFE standard. Right. Somebody figured out, hey, you know what, we could take a pickup truck and we could enclose the bed, and we could essentially build the same thing that we were building before, a fairly big vehicle with a powerful engine, but it's jacked up now, and it's got four-wheel drive, and we'll call it an SUV. Right. And the Ford Explorer was the first of those. And people loved it, you know, because they didn't want to drive the little downsized front-wheel drive cars that they'd been trying to be, the, the government was trying to force them into, and they saw this alternative, and they jumped on it. And so now we've got this completely distorted marketplace where almost everybody is driving some type of SUV or what are called crossover SUVs, which are designed to look like SUVs, same type of vehicle. Right. So that's just one example of how the government has grossly distorted what the market would otherwise have brought us. It's interesting because it, on, on the one hand, you see the negatives of, of that. On the other hand, you also see how the market oftentimes manages to find a way despite all of mm -hmm. the efforts of government to control it you know people people figure out how to of course the more they clamp down the more difficult they, that gets but it is interesting that you know that that people find ways around these fatwas uh, whenever they, they possibly can they do well and there, there are ironies here one irony is that in the name of saving gas the government incentivized the production of vehicles that are heavier and less aerodynamic, and because of things like four-wheel drive and because of the types of tires that they have, are much less fuel-efficient than a big sedan would have been. Believe it or not, some of the big sedans that were on the market until fairly recently, for example, the Ford Crown Victoria, a lot of cops used to use the Ford Crown Vic. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, that car was capable of 30 miles per gallon on the highway. Good luck finding a V8 SUV that can do that. Right. Well, good luck finding a V8. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the fundamental question here, and I, and I, I, I harp on this a lot, but I think it's important. Um, we supposedly live in a free country. Why is the government involved in dictating fuel economy at all? Um, you know, if people want highly fuel-efficient cars, the market would respond to that and, and, and build fuel-efficient cars. It stands contrary to reason to take the position that the evil, malignant car industry is going to build vehicles that people don't want because they don't want to make money. You know, if the money were in these really small, hyper-fuel-efficient cars, the car industry would fall all over itself because of natural market forces to right. build them. Yeah, and, and, that's, you know, and well, that's true of the EV and, as well. I mean, just going back to that subject. Yeah, and oh, you would talk about another very interesting distortion with regard to EVs. Uh, you know, initially, the whole point of the electric car was to reduce the cost of, of getting around. It was a response to high gas prices. Right. Well, the government, by creating all of these subsidies and mandates, incentivized the building of cars like the Tesla, 
which emphasize not economy, right. but high performance, luxury, and gadgetry. So now that has become the template. So you know what we've got essentially are electric, are high performance luxury sport cars that happen to be electrically powered. The the least expensive new electric car that you can buy is that Nissan Leaf that we were talking about, mm-hmm. and that's thirty thousand bucks for what is essentially uh, you know a little compact economy car. So to put that in simple terms, basically what we've got is we've got the government taking money from all of us to subsidize rich people's toys. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I'd like to have a Porsche 911 Turbo. I've always wanted one. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, but I don't get a $7,500 rebate, you know, if I go down to the Porsche store to buy one. Right. So I don't understand why somebody who goes out and buys the same basic thing that just happens to be powered by electricity is able to dip his hands in my pocket and your pocket and, and force us to, you know, I use air quotes again, help him uh, subsidize his purchase. Well, we're saving the environment, so you can, I guess you can sleep better at night knowing that, right? <laughs> but you know what? We're not even doing that. And, I know and we're not. On two levels. On two levels. First of all, um, the, electric, the electricity in this country, for the most part, uh, is produced by uh, utility plants that run on natural gas, oil, or coal. Right. So, uh, you know, there have been studies that I've read that, that say that in the aggregate, overall, while the emissions coming out of the tailpipe, because the electric car doesn't have one, uh, are maybe lower or non-existent, in the aggregate, in the whole, it's very debatable whether these cars, in fact, have any environmental benefit, even if you accept the whole climate change thing. Right. That's point one. And point two, because the emphasis now is on high performance, you hear Elon Musk and, and Tesla people constantly talk about how their car can go to, you know, the Tesla S can get to 60 in 2.9 seconds. Well, that's great, but because, you know, in order to get to, to 60 in 2.9 seconds, it requires considerably more energy, and energy mm-hmm. doesn't come out of the vacuum for free. Right. You know, so if, if, if you had a, an electric car that maybe got to 60 in the time that a Prius gets there, you'd probably have an electric car that used half or even a third less energy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it kind of illuminates the way... Costs are hidden, in, especially when the government gets involved in things. Because when we go put a gallon of gas in the car, we see exactly how much that costs us. You know, we, we swipe the card, we see the numbers on the, on the gas tank. When we go plug a car into an electrical outlet, we don't directly see the cost of that electricity. You know, it's, it's, it, it does in your head, it's almost like it's free. It's kind of like the way they do taxes. You know, we get, we get this tax mm-hmm. refund and they take the taxes out of our checks. We never see mm-hmm. them. We don't realize how much money we're paying in taxes. And, and it's interesting well, the way the government kind of hides these, uh, these costs from us. Yeah, and here's another thing that the general press has not been discussing um, with regard to hiding the true cost of electricity. Right now, um, I think roughly, what is it, about uh, 25% of the cost of every gallon of gas that you buy um, is motor fuel taxes, state, federal level, local taxes. Uh, There are, as yet, no motor fuels taxes applied to the kilowatt hour cost of electricity. That's true. So it's very it's very dishonest because how are we going to you know maintain the roads? You always hear people on the left talk about well, what about the roads? How are we going to maintain the roads? Well, the roads are maintained largely by these pay-as-you-go motor fuels vehicle taxes that you pay every time you fill up your car. But the electric vehicle owner currently pays absolutely no motor fuels taxes, so they're essentially getting a free ride, and that's going to have to stop, uh, or the roads are going to disintegrate. They're going to have to find some way uh, to replace the motor fuels tax, um, and they're probably going to do that by a mileage tax that will be applied, uh, you know, according to your odometer reading every year. 
That sounds lovely. Mm-hmm. Yep. But again, it's it's dis, it's disingenuous because uh, you know the real cost of the electricity is um, is being masked. You right. know, people are, are are at this moment because they're trying to push and incentivize these electric cars. They're essentially allowing people. And I don't like to use that word, of course, but nonetheless, they're allowing people to get this free ride with electricity, and, and that way people will think, oh, look, look at all the money I'm saving. It only costs me X amount to, to, you know, to charge my electric car uh, each month. Yeah, for now, but just wait until they apply the, you know, the equivalent taxes, and then it's not going to be such a bargain. Right. You know, that's uh, Bastiat's what's seen and unseen, and we, mm-hmm. like, we like to look at what is seen and ignore the unseen. Mm-hmm. So while we're on the subject of distortions, you, you've probably seen this news that came out last week. Uh, more than 7 million Americans have fallen at least 90 days delinquent on auto loans. Yeah. We're a million higher than the previous peak, which was back in 2010. And, and people remember 2010 as basically being the height of the Great Recession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of in, in from your point of view, uh, reading the car industry, what has caused, first off, the the skyrocketing number of auto loans. How has that distorted the financing of automobiles, and and kind of where do you see this going? Well, right now the average new car loan is six to seven years, which is roughly a doubling of what it had been historically. If you went back to the seventies and I think even into the eighties, the typical new car loan was about three or four years. Mm-hmm. So, because the cost of cars has increased significantly since that time for a variety of reasons they've had to push these loans out farther and farther to make it somewhat feasible for people to be able to manage that debt load. Um, the problem is that as you push that loan farther and farther out, uh, the depreciation starts to be your, your number one enemy. Right. Um, most cars lose about 10 to 15% of their value each year from the time that you roll off that dealer's lot. So that by the time you're at six or seven years, your vehicle is probably worth not even half what you paid for it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at this big note and thinking, gee, I'm, I'm paying, I'm paying you know, you're underwater. You know, as we used to talk about in the real estate business back during the, you know, the 08 crash, uh, people think, well, it doesn't make any sense for me to continue to pay on this thing because it's not worth, it's not worth what I still owe on it. Right. And so rationally, you know, it may not be moral, but rationally they make the decision to just walk away from the debt and default. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, another thing that's interesting about it, too, is uh, you mentioned real estate. There's an increasing, lar- increasingly large subprime auto market, and they're actually bundling these things together just like they did with the mortgage securities, yep. which is interesting. Yep. Uh, from, from what I was reading, a lot of what we're seeing right now, and I think between you and me, I think this is the beginning of, I think we're heading into a recessionary period, and I think this is kind of the canary in the coal mine, but most of this is in that subprime market where you're seeing mm-hmm. the delinquencies and the defaults right now. But, yes. You know, mm-hmm. it's like housing. It's just a matter of time before it it proliferates into the the uh, the broader market and then the broader economy. That's right. Now, the interesting thing is, you don't necessarily have to go into uh, or buy into a mountain of debt to buy a new car. Uh, the statistic that's touted, which is true, is that the cost of the average new car uh, is about thirty five thousand dollars now. Mm-hmm. That's what people are buying. However, you can still buy cars. I had a, a Mitsubishi Mirage that I reviewed a couple of weeks ago that you can pick up for about 13000 The thing is that the credit lending standards now are almost non-existent, and they'll write a loan for pretty much anybody. Sound familiar? Just like they did back during the housing thing. Uh, so people are being incentivized to purchase vehicles that they really can't afford because they want all those gadgets and also all the safety stuff, both the things that are mandated by the government and which people have been, in my opinion, gulled into believing they absolutely have to have. 
So, you know, they're, they're enamored of all the big touch screens and the technology, and rather than buy the sensible car at thirteen or 14000 that you know, that they could afford and they could manage, they go out and buy the $35,000 car, and they find that it's too much and it overwhelms them, and anything that goes wrong in their life, they lose their job or they have some expense that comes up, and they can't make the payment. Yeah, and that dovetails with actually my next question, because um, I drive a 1997 car on purpose, because I don't want all of the safety standards. Now, a lot of mm -hmm. times I travel a lot for business, and usually when I do that, I rent a car, uh, mainly because I don't want to drive a car with 250,000 miles on it long distances. But yep. um, So you get the newer, you know, I get to, I get to quote-unquote test drive a lot of newer cars that I rent. Mm -hmm. I absolutely despise these uh, lane departure warnings. and I was trying to drive, I think it was a Toyota Corolla. And uh, I, I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. So I, anytime I put cruise control, once I got within, like, I don't know, way farther than I wanted to, it started slowing the car down. Mm -hmm. And it made it difficult to even pass. You had to turn off the cruise control in order to pass. Yeah. Kind of kind of talk a little bit. And you write a lot about this. but So maybe kind of summarize all of this, this I guess, nanny state stuff that we're mm -hmm. seeing in cars. And, and uh, how can we avoid some of that stuff? Well, unfortunately, we can't avoid a lot of it because it's been mandated by the government, which, again, has taken, upon, taken it upon itself to uh, design cars on our behalf uh, and, and, and talk about that uh, as being a, for safety. But that has to be defined a little bit. We're not talking about cars uh, that are unsafe to drive. We're simply talking about whether they uh, meet various crashworthiness standards. So, uh, in other words, uh, the car isn't necessarily going to get into an accident, but if you get into an accident, it may be more or less able to absorb the, the impact right. uh, in that crash. Uh, so, you know, the Volkswagen Beetle that I drove when I first started working after college uh, was, was horrifically unsafe according to federal standards, but it was perfectly safe for me. I never right. crashed it. Right. Uh, it was a great car for me. I loved that car. Um, so, you know, that's really what we're talking about here. And the presumption behind all of it is it's reactive. It, it assumes that everybody is, is uh, adult, incompetent, uh, inept, and therefore we have to make the cars, uh, you know, on presumption, on the certainty that they're going to be crashed. And, and so we have to keep whoever, the, you know, the person is from dying from his own incompetence behind the wheel rather than encouraging people to be attentive and competent and responsible drivers, in my opinion. Um, and one consequence of this, unfortunately, this unintended consequence is that you've got all these new distractions in the car. Right. The car is beeping at you constantly, or it's flashing a light at you, or it's actively preempting you, as in the case of the thing that you mentioned, oh, the lane keep assist, yeah. or me too, or the automated emergency braking. That's another one. It'll mm -hmm. just jam on the brakes uh, when there's no need for the car to brake. And it's very, very, it's disconcerting. You have all of these these, these, these external things coming at you, and you know, you're, if you're trying to pay attention to your driving, it's increasingly difficult to do that, and in my opinion, that's pretty unsafe. Yeah, and isn't there really, I mean, like any economic equation, isn't there a trade-off between safety and, and cost and, and what you as an indiv individual, how you value that safety? Uh, you know, for For instance, you could make a car that's probably close to 100% safe if it didn't go over five miles an hour, mm -hmm. but well, sure. who's going to drive that? So, you know, they, and they talk about like the safest place in the world ostensibly is prison, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you've got yeah. cars everywhere. So, I mean, this is another example, and, and you, you harp on this a lot. The, the fact of the matter is, who is the government to tell us what our level of safety standard is? 
Well, and also to make what literally are life and death decisions on our behalf. I'll give you two, I think, good examples. One is there's a federal standard that requires all new cars be able to support their weight on the roof if they roll over in an accident. Right. Um, and because of that, uh, you may have noticed if you've been in a new car recently, that what are called the A, B, and C pillars, the, you know, the, the, the buttresses that right. support the roof at either end of the windshield and so on at the back of the car, have become enormously thick relative to what was typical in the past. Um, if you got into a car in the 70s, the 60s, or even into the 80s, those pillars were generally you know, three, four, maybe inches uh, wide. Now they're often twice that. Right. And the result is we have these horrific blind spots. Yes, we do. So while, while the car may be safer if you roll it, it is now much more likely that you are going to get T-boned pulling out of a side street because you couldn't see the car that was coming at you from the, you know, from the opposite lane. Um, that's one very concrete example. And here's another one. Uh, you know, airbags, they, they were forced right. down our throats, uh, and, to, and we were told, oh, this is, you know, this is going to save lives. Well, the plain objective fact is that they also take lives. Airbags do kill people occasionally. Yep. Uh, right now, we've got several hundred thousand cars in this country alone uh, that are driving around with known-to-be defective and potentially lethal Takata airbags. But the government took that decision away from us mm -hmm. and decided that it knew best. And I, I think that, that that's, an, to me, an incredibly obnoxious concept that we as free people uh, are, are having that, that, that risk calculation, that cost-benefit equation taken out of our hands as though we were kind of imbecile children and, and, and being preempted by these bureaucrats in Washington. Yeah, this, the sight line thing, absolutely. I've experienced that, again, renting cars. I have a hard time. The sight lines of my 1997 BMW are fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. I, I yep. don't really have any blind spots. Um, but, yeah, I get in some – I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was one of the Chevys. Um, I don't remember which one it was, but I had a hard time seeing – and that's why they crusade and didn't have to have backup cameras because you can't see out yeah. the back window. And you That's know. right. And, and, you know, the, the butt of the car now, the, the tail end of it, uh, there, you may have noticed this. They're all kind of – bulbous and jacked up and and the glass is really small and that's right. because of the the rear crash uh bumper impact standards and so now you can't see behind you and so now you have to have this federally mandated backup camera so that you don't back up over a kid who happens to be playing behind your car right um but those those cameras actually have terrible views even the, the best of them they don't have depth perception the way that human eye does right um and also their peripheral vision is inherently limited you know you've got a certain field of view mm -hmm. Whereas with your eye, you can actually look back there and you can see, but now people are encouraged to gape at this, this little LCD screen and assume it's okay to back up. And it's, it's, it, 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 would be, it would be almost uh, ironic and, and, and like the plot for a bad novel, except that right. it's our actual everyday reality. Well, speaking of bad novel plots, and this will uh, we'll kind of wrap up on this, uh, this final little topic, but you're hearing a lot of talk now about driverless cars in uh, yeah. this technology, and I actually mm -hmm. read an article the other day by uh, it was on a libertarian site about how great this was. You know, the advent of technology, mm -hmm. we're not going to have to drive. To me, it creeps me mm -hmm. out, and and maybe it's because I'm old. You know, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can call me a troglodyte or whatever, but or a luddite. But mm -hmm. what? I, and you've written about this too, so that's why I'm kind of bringing this up. You talk about cars being kind of. Uh, there's a parallel between the automobile and, and this idea of freedom. I love the song mm -hmm. Red Barchetta yep. by Rush because it kind of captures yep. that. Mm -hmm. that, that uh, how do you see this driverless car thing? I mean, do you see it as a great boon of, of technology that's going to free us up, or is it something that's kind of creepy and, and the government's going to use to keep us in one place? I think it's horrific. Um, I think uh, you know people need to be aware. 
you're talking about, uh, I use the term automated rather uh, than autonomous. You, you know, you'll generally hear the term autonomous. Well, autonomous to me, if you look at the dictionary, means independent. Right. Uh, these cars are not independent. They are controlled by somebody who is not you. So, you know, let that sink in. Uh, I personally mm -hmm. love the idea if uh, I decide, hey, you know, after we're done talking today, uh, I think I'm going to jump in my car and I'm going to go down to the coffee shop. I can just get in and go, and I can pick whatever route I'd like, and I can go there, you know, on my schedule uh, how I wish. No external force uh, is compelling me uh, and monitoring me and controlling me. And really, that's what you're, you know, you're talking about here in principle with these automated cars. You're talking about surrendering your mobility to, it's not just the government, it's what I call the government corporate nexus, right. uh, and allowing them to control your movement. And I find that, that prospect to be enormously creepy, leaving aside any, any technical uh, objections, of which there are many. Right. Yeah, I don't, you know, you're probably like me. Sometimes I just like to get in the car and drive. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's exactly. a great way to clear your head. I live in Kentucky, so you can get out on some of these rural roads. It's beautiful. You know, I don't, I don't want to n not be able to drive, and that's what I see coming. You know, it's not just that it's going to be, oh, you have this option to, to go in the uh, the autonomous car. It's going to be you have to do this, and you're not allowed to own a that's car. Right. That's that's what I see coming down the track. Well, yeah, exactly. I see it coming with neon lights flashing. I think that that's pretty obvious to anybody who's paying attention. Again, I wouldn't have any issue with this if it were a purely market-driven thing and right. it were offered to people. For example. Uh, older people who can't see well anymore and who mm -hmm. can't drive anymore and who are limited in terms of where they can go because they can't drive. I'm sympathetic to that, and I think for, you know, for that kind of person or a handicapped person, let's say, uh, it would be a boon to be able to have, uh, you know, ha be able to call up a, an, au an automated vehicle and have it take them to the supermarket and back. That's great. Right. But that's really not what we're talking about here. We're talking, again, as with the electric cars, of this top-down move to, to kind of just push and force us to use you know, the, the infamous term of Cass Sunstein to nudge right. us with a bayonet uh, in, in a certain direction. And, I, and I, I think it's high time that we push back against that. All right, one final question. This is a fun question. It has absolutely nothing to do with cars. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a very personal question to me because I'm an editor. I do a lot of editing. Mm -hmm. When you are typing on a computer, not a typewriter, do you double space after every sentence? I, let me think, I don't, and the reason I don't is because of uh, a, a, a style, incul it was inculcated in, in, into my brain or hardwired into my brain when I first began my journalism career that uh, there was one space after the conclusion of uh, any sentence after a period. Bless you. I'll let you come back on my show. The, the, <laughs> the two spaces after the sentence is something that absolutely drives me batty and insane, especially on the, because it doesn't look right on a website. And, you know, of course, it evolved out of typewriters, and, and because of the way fonts were on typewriters, it actually right. was necessary to do it. And so a lot of people that, that are, I'm assuming we're probably pretty close in the same age range. Um, I was born in the, in the early, mid-60s. So people that learn typing, you learn that, and a lot of people have had a hard time breaking that habit. But as an editor, I have to go back and fix all those spaces when I'm putting their stuff on the website. So. Oh, you've got my sympathy. I'm, I'm grateful that I only have to edit my own stuff. <laughs> of course, that, that can be a challenge. I'm, I can't edit myself, so you know, there's that, that problem as well. So. Well, neither can I, but luckily I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, as we, you know, we say in the journalism business, my stuff is usually pretty clean. I'm right. pretty good with grammar and spelling, but you're right. You know, it's a bad idea to edit your own stuff. 
Um, but I can't afford to hire a full-time copy editor. Right. Well, but the nice thing about it is, is nobody can fire you either. So that's you know, right. That's, exactly that's the big right. plus. Well, before we cut off, let me uh, give you an opportunity to uh, provide the audience with all of your uh, essential social media sites, your website address, and all of those things. Where can we find Eric Peters? Well, chiefly at epautos.com, you know, fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, my Twitter is also, and it's a little awkward, Libertarian Car G. They wouldn't give me guy, so I just uh. got G. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the preponderance of it. The one thing I'd like to mention that, that uh, people listening may be interested in, uh, we have a little feature on the site that's called Ask Eric, and you'll see the little button at the end of every article. Uh, if you have a question about cars, whatever it may be, if you're in the market for a car, or just a repair question or anything like that, um, I'm happy to answer questions. That's free. There's no money involved. I just do that as a, as a thank you to the people who you know come to the site. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate it, and, and I will encourage people to visit the site. Like I said, even if you're not a huge automobile person, uh, I, I love the way you write. I like some of the terminology you use. You, you know, terms like clover and uh, armed government agent, <laughs> or armed government employees, and uh, you, you have a nice way with words that makes your writing very interesting. Even if you're not into the whole techie thing of automobiles. So, well, thanks. You know, we have to have fun. You know, part of it is you know important and serious, but you you also I think need to be entertaining and, and, and in order to get something across. If you're boring, people aren't going to read you or listen to you. Absolutely. Well, again, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it, and uh, you have a great day. Thanks, Mike. You also. You've been watching It's You or Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's one 888 Four six five three one six zero, or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com/news, and tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.